10. Arts unknown before, let old Timotheus yield the prize, or both divide the crown, he raised a mortal to the skies, she drew an angel down. Dryden Satin Bower Birds, the Satin Bower Bird was one of the earliest known species in the Australian fauna, and probably received the name of Satin Grickle, by which it was described in Latham's General History of Birds, from the intensely black glossy plumage of the adult male, but, Although the existence of this bird was noticed by most of the writers on the natural history of Australia subsequent to Latham, it appears that no suspicion of its singular economy had extended beyond the remotest settlers, until Mr. Gould, whose great work on the birds of Australia is known to everyone, unraveled the history of the bowers, which had been discovered in many parts of the bush, and which had been attributed to almost every possible origin but the right one, the bower as will be seen by the illustration, is composed of twigs woven together in the most compact manner, and ornamented with shells and feathers, the disposition of which the birds are continually altering, they have no connection with the nest, and are simply playing places, in which the birds divert themselves during the months which precede nidification, the birds themselves are nearly as large as a jackdaw, the female is green in color, the center of the breast feathers yellowish, the unmilted plumage of the male is similar, the eyes of both are brilliant blue, the pool of Siloam, the fountain and pool of Siloam, whose surplus waters flow in a little streamlet falling into the Lake Kedron, is situated near the ancient walls of the city of Jerusalem, Mr. Wilde tells us that the fountain of Siloam is a mineral spring of a brackish taste, and somewhat of the smell of the Harrogate water, but in a very slight degree, it is said to possess considerable medicinal properties, and is much frequented by pilgrims, Continuing our course, says he, around the probable line of the ancient walls, along the gentle slope of Zion, we pass by the king's gardens, and arrive at the lower pool of Siloam, placed in another indentation in the wall, it is a deep square cistern lined with masonry, adorned with columns at the sides, and having a flight of steps leading to the bottom, in which there was about two feet of water, it communicates by a subterraneous passage with the fountain from which it is distant about 600 yards, the water enters the pool by a low arched passage, into which the pilgrims, numbers of whom are generally to be found around it, put their heads, as part of the ceremony, and wash their clothes in the purifying stream that rises from it, during a rebellion in Jerusalem, in which the Arabs inhabiting the tillage of Siloam were the ringleaders, they gained access to the city by means of the conduit of this pool, which again rises within the mosque of Omer, this passage is evidently the work of art, the water in it is generally about two feet deep, and a man may go through it in a stooping position, when the stream leaves the pool, it is divided into numbers of little aqueducts, for the purpose of irrigating the gardens and pleasure grounds which lie immediately beneath it in the valley, and are the chief source of their fertility, for, as they are mostly formed of earth which has been carried from other places, they possess no original or natural soil capable of supporting vegetation, as there is but little water in the pool during the dry season, the Arabs dam up the several streams in order to collect a sufficient quantity in small ponds adjoining each garden, and this they all do at the same time, or there would be an unfair division of the fertilizing fluid, these dams are generally made in the evening and drawn off in the morning, or sometimes two or three times a day, and thus the reflex of the water that they hold gives the appearance of an ebb and flow, which by some travelers has caused a report that the pool of Siloam is subject to daily tides. There are few towns, and scarcely any metropolitan town, 
in which the natural supply of water is so inadequate as at Jerusalem, hence the many and elaborate contrivances to preserve the precious fluid, or to bring it to the town by aqueducts. Winter thoughts. Ah, little think the gay licentious proud, whom pleasure, power, and affluence surround they who their thoughtless hours in getting earth, and wanton, often cruel, ride waste. Ah, little think they, while they dance along how many feel this very moment death and all the sad variety of pain, how many sink in the devouring flood, or more devouring flame, how many bleed by shameful variance betwixt man and man, how many pine in want and dungeon glooms, shut from the common air, and common use of their own limbs, how many drink the cup of baleful grief, or eat the bitter bread of misery, sore pierced by wintry wines, how many shrink into the sordid head of cheerless poverty, how many shake with all the fiercer tortures of the mind, and bounded passion, madness, guilt, remorse, once tumbled headlong from the height of life, they furnish matter for the tragic muse, even in the vale where wisdom loves to dwell, with friendship, peace, and contemplation joined, how many, racked with honest passions, droop in deep retired distress, how many stand around the deathbed of their dearest friends, and point the parting anguish, thought fond man of these, and all the thousand nameless ills, that one incessant struggle render life one scene of toil, of suffering, and of fate. Vice in its high career would stand appalled, and heedless, rambling impulse learn to think, the conscious heart of charity would warm, and her wide wish benevolence dilate, the social tear would rise, the social sigh, and into clear perfection gradual bliss, refining still, the social passions work. Thompson, British troops in Canada, really winter in Canada must be felt to be imagined, and one felt can no more be described by words, than colors to a blind man or music to a deaf one, even under bright sunshine, and in a most exhilarating air, the biting effect of the cold upon the portion of our face that is exposed to it resembles the application of a strong acid, and the healthy grin which the countenance assumes, requires as I often observed on those who for many minutes had been in a warm room waiting to see me a considerable time to relax, in a calm, Almost any degree of cold is bearable, but the application of successive doses of it to the face by wine, becomes, occasionally, almost unbearable, indeed, I remember seeing the left cheek of nearly twenty of our soldiers simultaneously frostbitten in marching about a hundred yards across a bleak open space, completely exposed to a strong and bitterly cold northwest wine that was blowing upon us all, the remedy for this intense cold to which many Canadians and others have occasionally recourse, is at least to my feelings it always appeared infinitely worse than the disease. On entering, for instance, the small parlor of a little inn, a number of strong, able-bodied fellows are discovered holding their hands a few inches before their faces, and sitting in silence immediately in front of a stove of such excruciating power, that it really feels as if it would roast the very eyes in their sockets, and yet, as one endures this agony, the back part is as cold as if it belonged to what is called at home, Old Father Christmas. As a further instance of the climate, I may add, that several times, while my mind was very warmly occupied in writing my dispatches, I found my pen full of a lump of stuff that appeared to be honey, but which proved to be frozen ink, again, after washing in the morning, when I took up some money that had lain all night on my table, I at first fancied it had become sticky until I discovered that the sensation was caused by its freezing to my fingers, which, in consequence of my ablutions, were not perfectly dry, notwithstanding, 
However, this intensity of cold, the powerful circulation of the blood of large quadrupeds keeps the red fluid, like the movement of the waters in the Great Lakes, from freezing, but the human frame not being gifted with this power, many people lose their limbs, and occasionally their lives, from cold. I one day inquired of a fine, ruddy, honest-looking man, who called upon me, and whose toes and instep of each foot had been truncated, how the accident happened, he told me that the first winter he came from England he lost his way in the forest, and that after walking for some hours, feeling pain in his feet, he took off his boots, and from the flesh immediately swelling, he was unable to put them on again, his stockings, which were very old ones, soon wore into holes, and as rising on his insteps he was hurriedly proceeding he knew not where, he saw with alarm, but without feeling the slightest pain, first one toe and then another break off, as if they had been pieces of brittle stick, and in this mutilated state he continued to advance till he reached a path which led him to an inhabited log house, where he remained suffering great pain till his cure was effected, although the Sunday from the latitude, has considerable power, it appears only to illuminate the sparkling snow, which, like the sugar on a bridal cake, conceals the whole surface, the instant, however, the fire of heaven sinks below the horizon, the cold descends from the upper regions of the atmosphere with a feeling as if it were poured down upon the head and shoulders from a jug, Sir Francis Head, Balloons, the idea of constructing a machine which should enable us to rise into and sail through the air, seems often to have occupied the attention of mankind, even from remote times, but it was never realized until within the last 60 or 70 years, the first public ascent of a fire balloon in France, in 1783, led to an experiment on the part of Joseph Montgolfier, he constructed a balloon of linen, lined with paper, which, when inflated by means of burning chopped straw and coal, was found to be capable of raising 500 pounds weight, it was inflated in front of the palace at Versailles, in the presence of the royal family, and a basket, containing a sheep, a duck, and a cock, was attached to it, it was then liberated, and ascended to the height of 1500 feet, it fell about two miles from Versailles, the animals were uninjured, and the sheep was found quietly feeding near the place of its descent, Monsieur Montgolfier then constructed one of superior strength, and a empty rosier ventured to take his seat in the car and ascend 300 feet, the height allowed by the ropes, which were not cut, this same person afterwards undertook an aerial voyage, descending in safety about five miles from Paris, where the balloon ascended, but this enterprising voyager in the air afterwards attempted to travel in a balloon with sails, this was formed by a singular combination of balloons one inflated with hydrogen gas, and the other a fire balloon, the latter, however, catching fire, the whole apparatus fell from the height of about three quarters of a mile, with the mangled bodies of the voyagers attached to the complicated machinery, a Frenchman named Tester, in 1786, also made an excursion in a balloon with sails, these sails or wings aided in carrying his balloon so high, that when he had reached an elevation of 3,000 feet, fearing his balloon might burst, he descended into a cornfield in the plain of Montmorency, an immense crowd ran eagerly to the spot, and the owner of the field, angry at the injury his crop had sustained, demanded instant indemnification, Tester offered no resistance but persuaded the peasants that, having lost his wings, he could not possibly escape. The ropes were seized by a number of persons, who attempted to drag the balloon towards the village, but as, 
During the procession, it had acquired considerable buoyancy. Testor suddenly cut the cords, and, rising in the air, left the disappointed peasants overwhelmed in astonishment. After being out in a terrible thunderstorm, he descended and injured, about twelve hours from the time of his first ascent. Sir Thomas Gresham, among the worthies of this country who, after a successful and honorable employment of their talent in life, have generously consulted the advantage of generations to come after them. Few names appear more conspicuous than that of Sir Thomas Gresham, the founder of Gresham College, and of the Royal Exchange, London. He was born in that city about the year 1518, the second son of Sir Richard Gresham, who served the office of sheriff in 1531, and that of Lord Mayor in 1537. He received a liberal education at the university, and is mentioned in high terms as having distinguished himself at Cambridge, being styled that noble and most learned merchant. His father at this time held the responsible position of King's Merchant, and had the management of the royal monies at Antwerp, then the most important seat of commerce in Europe, and when his son Sir Thomas succeeded him in this responsible appointment, he not only established his fame as a merchant, but secured universal respect and esteem. After the accession of Queen Elizabeth, his good qualities attracted the peculiar notice of Her Majesty, who was pleased to bestow on him the honor of knighthood, and at this time he built the noble house in Bishopsgate Street, which after his death was converted to the purposes of a college of his own foundation. In the year 1564, Sir Thomas made an offer to the Corporation of London, that, if the city would give him a piece of ground, he would erect an exchange at his own expense, and thus relieve the merchants from their present uncomfortable mode of transacting business in the open air. The liberal offer being accepted, the building, which was afterwards destroyed in the Great Fire of London, was speedily constructed, at a very great expense, and ornamented with a number of statues. Nor did Gresham's persevering benevolence stop here, though he had so much to engross his time and attention he still found leisure to consider the claims of the destitute and aged, and in his endowment of eight alms houses with a comfortable allowance for as many decayed citizens of London, displayed that excellent grace of charity which was his truest ornament. In person Sir Thomas was above the middle height, and handsome when a young man, but he was rendered lame by a fall from his horse during one of his journeys in Flanders. Sir Thomas Gresham's exemplary life terminated suddenly on the 21st of November. 1579, after he had just paid a visit to the noble building which he had so generously founded, on the attainment of knowledge, let the enlargement of your knowledge be one constant view and design in life, since there is no time or place, no transactions, occurrences, or engagements in life, which exclude us from this method of improving the mind, when we are alone, even in darkness and silence, we may converse with our own hearts, observe the working of our own spirits, and reflect upon the inward motions of our own passions in some of the latest occurrences in life, we may acquaint ourselves with the powers and properties, the tendencies and inclinations both of body and spirit, and gain a more intimate knowledge of ourselves. When we are in company, we may discover something more of human nature, of human passions and follies, and of human affairs, vices and virtues, by conversing with mankind, and observing their conduct nor is there anything more valuable than the knowledge of ourselves and the knowledge of men, except it be the knowledge of God who made us, and our relation to him as our governor, when we are in the house or the city, wheresoever we turn our eyes, we see the works of men, when we are abroad in the country, 
we behold more of the works of God, the skies and the ground above and beneath us, and the animal and vegetable world round about us, may entertain our observation with ten thousand varieties, fetch down some knowledge from the clouds, the stars, the sun day the moon, and the revolutions of all the planets, dig and draw up some valuable meditations from the depths of the earth, and search them through the vast oceans of water, extract some intellectual improvement from the minerals and metals, from the wonders of nature among the vegetables and herbs, trees and flowers, learn some lessons from the birds and the beasts, and the meanest insect, read the wisdom of God, and his admirable contrivance in them all, read his almighty power, his rich and various goodness, in all the works of his hands, from the day and the night, the hours and the flying minutes, learn a wise improvement of time, and be watchful to seize every opportunity to increase in knowledge, from the vices and follies of others, observe what is hateful in them, consider how such a practice looks in another person, and remember that it looks as ill or worse in yourself, from the virtue of others, learn something worthy of your imitation, from the deformity, the distress, or calamity of others, derive lessons of thankfulness to God, and hymns of grateful praise to your Creator, Governor, and Benefactor, who has formed you in a better mold, and guarded you from those evils, learn also the sacred lesson of contentment in your own estate, and compassion to your neighbor under his miseries, from your natural powers, sensations, judgment, memory, hands, feet, and see, make this inference, that they were not given you for nothing, but for some useful employment to the honor of your maker, and for the good of your fellow creatures, as well as for your own best interest and final happiness, Dr. Watts. T-H-I-B-E-A and Sheep, the enterprising traveler, Moorcroft, during his journey across the vast chain of the Himalaya mountains, in India, undertaken with the hope of finding a passage across those mountains into Tartary, noticed, in the district of Ladakh, the peculiar race of sheep of which we give an engraving, subsequent observations having confirmed his opinion as to the quality of their flesh and wool, the Honorable East India Company imported a flock which were sent for a short time to the gardens of the Zoological Society, Regent's Park. They were then distributed among those landed proprietors whose possessions are best adapted, by soil and climate, for naturalizing in the British Islands this beautiful variety of the mountain sheep, the wool, the flesh, and the milk of the sheep appear to have been very early appreciated as valuable products of the animal, with us. Indeed, the milk of the flock has given place to that of the herd, but the two former still retain their importance. Soon after the subjugation of Britain by the Romans, a woolen manufactory was established at Winchester, situated in the midst of a district then, as now, peculiarly suited to the short wool breed of sheep. So successful was this manufacture, that British cloths were soon preferred at Rome to those of any other part of the empire, and were worn by the most opulent on festive and ceremonial occasions, from that time forward. The production of wool in this island, and the various manufactures connected with it, have gone on increasing in importance, until it has become one of the chief branches of our commerce. Naval tactics, on being told the number and size of the sails which a vessel can carry that is to say, can sail with, without danger of being upset, the uninitiated seldom fail to express much surprise. This is not so striking in a three-decker, as in smaller vessels because the hull of the former stands very high out of the water, for the sake of its triple rank of guns, 
and therefore bears a greater proportion to its canvas than that of a frigate or a smaller vessel. The apparent inequality is most obvious in the smallest vessels, as cutters, and of those kept for pleasure, and therefore built for the purpose of sailing as fast as possible, without reference to freight or load. There are many the hull of which might be entirely wrapped up in the mainsail. It is of course very rarely, if ever, that a vessel carries at one time all the sail she is capable of, the different sails being usually employed according to the circumstances of direction of wind and course. The sails of a ship, when complete, are as follows, the lowermost sail of the mast, called thence the mainsail, or foresail, the topsail, carried by the topsail yard, the top gallant sail, and above this there is also set a royal sail, and again above this, but only on emergencies, a sail significantly called a sky sail. Besides all this, the three lowermost of these are capable of having their surface to be exposed to the wind increased by means of studding sails, which are narrow sails set on each side beyond the regular one, by means of small booms or yards, which can be slid out so as to extend the lower yards and topsail yards. The upper parts of these additional sails hang from small yards suspended from the principal ones, and the boom of the lower studding sails is hooked onto the chains. Thus each of the two principal masts, the fore and main, are capable of bearing no less than 13 distinct sails. If a ship could be imagined as cut through by a plane, at right angles to the keel, close to the mainmast, the area, or surface, of all the sails on this would be five or six times as great as that of the section or profile of the hull. The starboard studding sails are on the foremast, and on both sides of the main top gallant and main royal, but, in going nearly before a line, there is no advantage derived from the stay sails, which, accordingly, are not set. The flying jib is to be set to assist in steadying the motion. The mizzen mast, instead of a lower square sail like the two others, has a sail like that of a cutter, lying in the plane of the keel, its bottom stretched on a boom, which extends far over the tatheral, and the upper edge carried by a gaff or yard sloping upwards, supported by ropes from the top of the mizzen mast. All these sails, the sky sails excepted, have four sides, as have also the sprit sails on the bowsprit, jib boom, and sea dot, and all except the sail last mentioned on the mizzen, usually lie across the ship, or in planes forming considerable angles with the axis or central line of the ship. There are a number of sails which lie in the same plane with the keel. Being attached to the various stays of the masts, these are triangular sails, and those are called stay sails which are between the masts, those before the foremast, and connected with the bowsprit, are the forestay sail, the foretopmast stay sail, the jib, sometimes a flying jib, and another called a middle jib, and there are two or three others used occasionally. Thus it appears that there are no less than 53 different sails, which are used at times, though, we believe, seldom more than 20 are set at one time, for it is obviously useless to extend or set a sail, if the wind is prevented from filling it by another which intercepts the current of air. The higher the wind, the fewer the sails which a ship can carry, but as a certain number, or rather quantity, of canvas is necessary in different parts of the ship to allow of the vessel being steered, the principal sails, that island the courses or lower sails, and the top sails, admit of being reduced in extent by what is termed reefing, this is done by tying up the upper part of the sail to the yard by means of rows of strings called reef points passing through the canvas, this reduces the depth of the sail, while its width is not altered on the yard, which is therefore obliged to be lowered on the mast accordingly. 
Ships are principally distinguished as those called merchantmen, which belong to individuals or companies, and are engaged in commerce, and men of war, or the national ships, built for the purposes of war. The latter receive their designation from the number of their decks, or of the guns which they carry. The largest are termed ships of the line, from their forming the line of battle when acting together in fleets, and are divided into first rates, second rates, third rates, and C. First rates include all those carrying 100 guns and upwards, with a company of 850 men and upwards, second rates mount 90 to 100 guns, and so on, down to the sixth rates, but some ships of less than 44 guns are termed frigates. There are three principal masts in a complete ship, the first is the main mast, which stands in the center of the ship, at a considerable distance forward is the foremast, and at a less distance behind, the mizzen mast, these masts passing through the decks, are fixed firmly in the keel. There are added to them other masts, which can be taken down or raised hoisted, as it is termed at sea at pleasure, these are called top masts, and, according to the mast to which each is attached main, fore, or mizzen topmast, when the topmast is carried still higher by the addition of a third, it receives the name of top gallant mast. The yards are long poles of wood slung across the masts, or attached to them by one end, and having fixed to them the upper edge of the principal sails, they are named upon the same plan as the masts, for example, the main yard, the foretop sail yard, and so on. The bowsprit is a strong conical piece of timber, projecting from the stem of a ship, and serving to support the foremast, and as a yard or boom on which certain sails are movable, according as the wind blows from different points, in regard to the course the ship is sailing. It is necessary that the direction of the yards should be changed, so as to form different angles with the central line or with the keel, this is effected by ropes brought from the ends of the yards to the mast behind that to which these belong, and then, passing through blocks, they come down to the deck, by pulling one of these, the other being slackened, the yard is brought round to the proper degree of inclination, this is termed bracing the yards, the ropes being termed braces, the choice of Hercules. When Hercules was in that part of his youth in which it was natural for him to consider what course of life he ought to pursue, he one day retired into a desert, where the silence and solitude of the place very much favored his meditations, as he was musing on his present condition, and very much perplexed in himself on the state of life he should choose, he saw two women, of a larger stature than ordinary, approaching towards him, one of them had a very noble air, and graceful deportment, her beauty was natural and easy, her person clean and unspotted, her eyes cast towards the ground with an agreeable reserve, her motion and behavior full of modesty, and her raiment as white as snow. The other had a great deal of health and floridness in her countenance, which she had helped with an artificial white and red, and she endeavored to appear more graceful than ordinary in her mien. By a mixture of affectation in all her gestures, she had a wonderful confidence and assurance in her looks and all the variety of colors in her dress, that she thought were the most proper to shew her complexion to advantage. She cast her eyes upon herself, then turned them on those that were to present, to see how they liked her, and often looked on the figure she made in her own shadow. Upon her nearer approach to Hercules, she stepped before the other lady, who came forward with a regular, composed carriage, and running up to him, accosted him after the following manner, My dear Hercules, says she, I find you are very much divided in your thoughts upon the way of life that you ought to choose, be my friend, 
and follow me, I will lead you into the possession of pleasure, and out of the reach of pain, and remove you from all the noise and disquietude of business, the affairs of either war or peace shall have no power to disturb you, your whole employment shall be to make your life easy, and to entertain every sense with its proper gratifications, sumptuous tables, beds of roses, clouds of perfume, concerts of music, crowds of beauties, are all in readiness to receive you, come along with me into this region of delights, this world of pleasure, and bid farewell forever to care, to pain, to business, Hercules, hearing the lady talk after this manner, desired to know her name, to which she answered, my friends, and those who are well acquainted with me, call me happiness, but my enemies, and those who would injure my reputation, have given me the name of pleasure, by this time the other lady was come up, who addressed herself to the young hero in a very different manner, Hercules, says she, I offer myself to you because I know you are descended from the gods, and give proofs of that descent by your love of virtue and application to the studies proper for your age, this makes me hope you will gain, both for yourself and me, an immortal reputation, but before I invite you into my society and friendship, I will be open and sincere with you, and must lay this down as an established truth, that there is nothing truly valuable which can be purchased without pains and labor, the gods have set a price upon every real and noble pleasure, if you would gain the favor of the deity, you must be at the pains of worshipping him, if the friendship of good men, you must study to oblige them, if you would be honored by your country, you must take care to serve it, in short, if you would be eminent in war or peace you must become master of all the qualifications that can make you so. These are the only terms and conditions upon which I can propose happiness. The goddess of pleasure here broke in upon her discourse, you see, said she, Hercules, by her own confession, the way to her pleasures is long and difficult, whereas that which I propose is short and easy. Alas, said the other lady, whose visage glowed with passion, made up of scorn and pity, what are the pleasures you propose? to eat before you are hungry, drink before you are athirst, sleep before you are tired, to gratify appetites before they are raised, and raise such appetites as nature never planted, you never heard the most delicious music, which is the praise of oneself, nor saw the most beautiful object, which is the work of one's own hands, your votaries pass away their youth in a dream of mistaken pleasures, while they are hoa, 